Hello, everybody. This is Marshall Poe. I'm the editor of the New Books Network. NBN listeners like to read books and buy them. So we thought we'd tell you that right now, our friends at Princeton University Press are having a remarkable site-wide sale. You can get 50% off books, including ebooks and audiobooks, with the code 50, F-I-F-T-Y, at checkout until May 31. You can save some real money on Princeton University Press books. I encourage you to go there and check it out. Welcome to the New Books Network. New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is supported by the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre at the University of Sydney. SIAC is a university-wide multidisciplinary initiative that facilitates collaborations and builds on the expertise of our researchers to address the region's challenges. If you'd like to know more about SIAC's latest activities, click on the links included on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. If you'd like to listen to more podcasts about Southeast Asia, Check out the Sydney Southeast Asia Centre's podcast series, SIAC Stories, available on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Another great sponsor of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies is the Griffith Asia Institute, an internationally renowned research centre committed to the study of and engagement with Asia and the Pacific. The Institute's research focuses on politics, security and economic development, emphasising the enhancement of links between businesses, governments and academia. For more information on Griffith Asia Institute's activities, click on their website link on the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies website. Anyone who's taken an interest in the politics of Thailand in the last decade or so couldn't help but have noticed the part that the country's judiciary has played in the rise and fall of governments and suppression of political dissent. Whereas before the 2000s, the courts in Thailand had at best a peripheral role in political life there, in recent years, judges have at times weighed in dramatically on high-stakes conflicts. The causes and consequences of these judicial interventions are the subjects of a new book by Duncan McCargo, Fighting for Virtue, Justice and Politics in Thailand, published in 2019 by Cornell University Press. In this episode of New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, we'll be speaking with Duncan about the book. He's the director of the Nordic Institute of Asian Studies and Professor of Political Science at the University of Copenhagen. He'll be in conversation with me, Nick Cheeseman, a fellow in the College of Asia and the Pacific Australian National University and co-host of the New Books in Southeast Asian Studies channel on the New Books Network. Duncan, thanks for joining us. Thank you, Nick. Duncan, you've been researching in and writing on Thailand for many years. What led you to take a special interest in the courts and judges that are the subject of your new book? You know, my interest in courts really began as a result of uh, research that I was doing in the deep south of Thailand. I had an extraordinary year based in Badani in 2005-06, during which time I was doing research for what became the book Tearing Apart the Land. And one of the things that I did during my travels around the three southern border provinces, which are still in the grip of an ongoing violent insurgency, was to take a strong interest in a number of court cases that were happening at the time, visiting courts, attending some parts of trials and having some conversations with judges and also with prosecutors and people involved in different aspects of the legal system. So that wasn't a core element of tearing apart the land. I think there's a couple of pages that came out of that sort of little sideline. But I became very intrigued by what was going on in Thai courts and what kind of world the, the judges and prosecutors and lawyers that I was coming across inhabited. 
Of course, during that incredible year, 2005-06, something else also happened, which was an ongoing political crisis was brewing in Bangkok. And I spent my entire year trying to stay focused on what was going on in the Deep South, whilst the Thaksin government was facing increasing challenges with the rise of the uh, PAD movement and then the pressure which led to Thaksin calling a snap election in April 2006. And it was in the wake of that episode that the king came out and made these two very interesting speeches about the role of the judiciary, essentially asking judges to help come in and solve some of Thailand's political problems. So that was a backdrop. It was like another channel that I was trying to turn down because I was attempting to stay very focused on the insurgency in Bataniyala and Naratiwad. But once I'd finished that book, I had to go back and, and turn that channel back up again and try to work out what I wanted to do. This set the scene for us. How did the judges respond to the King's speeches in 2006? Well, there are a whole series of different things that happened arising out of that moment, which I explore in the book. And of course, we have to break down judges into different categories. In particular here, we have the judges of the courts of justice who are involved in quote-unquote normal criminal cases, some of which are really far from normal, and then judges of the constitutional court. And they were the prime actors who were sort of inspired by this moment of judicialization following the royal speech. But what we saw after that was, for example, the uh, annulment of the April 2006 election by the Constitutional Court. And later on, there was a military coup. There was dissolution of Taksin's original political party, the Tyrak Thai Party. And all sorts of other court cases then started to be brought against people who had been associated one way or another with Taksin or seen as being against the establishment, against the monarchy. Those people were often charged with les majesté, with freedom of expression related crimes. And so this moment in 2006 was sort of a trigger for a large number of court cases of different kinds that sort of converge on the idea of judges being brought in to help solve Thailand's very intense political polarization and to deal with the problem. And the problem to a large extent was the problem of Thaksin Chinawat, the then prime minister, and the people around him and the extent to which they had displaced the existing power network, the network monarchy, as I call it, and attempted to establish their own set of informal governance arrangements for Thailand. And did judges themselves really seize this opportunity or was it thrust upon them? That's to say, were they more willing or unwilling participants in your view in these political dramas that unfolded subsequently? I'm very far from convinced that the judges were really delighted by this mission. For the most part, it put them into a bit of a quandary. They didn't feel particularly qualified to deal with political problems. They were very anxious to avoid being blamed for whatever might go wrong going forward. What was going on here was to some extent a, a politics of evasion. The monarchy is saying, oh, this really isn't my problem. I mean, that was a big theme of the two 2006 speeches. Don't get me involved in this. I'm not going to help you, you know, get rid of this prime minister by invoking some article of the constitution and putting someone else in to be prime minister. That would reflect very badly on me. Why don't you take care of the problem? Whereupon the judges were scurrying around trying to work out what it was that they were supposed to do. And it was also very awkward for a constitutional court that at that point included 
a number of people who had been close to or sympathetic to Taksin himself. So it was a moment of crisis, an identity crisis for the judges, where they were also really put on the spot. Whether or not the judges were willing, you and other people who have studied the situation in Thailand after 2006 have referred to this as a moment of judicialization. What do you mean by that? And what are the implications of this judicialization for politics in Thailand? Judicialization is one of these catch-all terms that could cover quite a wide range of things. You know, on the one hand, it could be positive to have judges play a more engaged, potentially more progressive, a more critical role in interpreting laws in ways that could be of the wider benefit of society rather than just literally following mechanically precedents from previous Supreme Court decisions. So that could be a, a more liberal end of judicialization. But most of the talk about judicialization in the Thai context has been more at the conservative end, really seeing judges as an instrument of state power, but very particularly as carrying out the royal will in a polity where the monarchy is invested with very considerable kudos and where it's the proximity of the judges to the crown that actually gives them a lot of their identity and authority. So there's a sense in which judges are acting on behalf of the king in order to solve quote-unquote, political problems in a way that the palace, that the monarchy itself would like those problems to be solved. So this is the idea of the judges as, as an instrument of royal authority or conservative authority working on behalf of you know the, the forces of peace and order. And that's a very conservative notion of judicialization because in that notion, which became rather popular in some circles in the wake of the 2006 speech, that notion, it's rather risky for the integrity of the judiciary because it reduces their autonomy. Presumably that relationship to the monarchy preceded the speeches in 2006. So was there something about that specific intervention or those interventions by the king that then changed that relationship qualitatively somehow that then led to this uh, kinds of interventions that you write about extensively in the book? The reason why 2006 is such an important moment is that, first of all, we have to go back to a few places, but the most obvious place to go back to is 1997. 1997 is the promulgation of the so-called People's Constitution, which is a new constitution that has been put together by a group of people who've done quite a lot of public consultation and are animated by certain kinds of ideas about the power of legal institutions and authority to regulate a political system. So under the 1997 constitution, you set up a constitutional court, the administrative court in its present form, a counter-corruption commission, an election commission, a lot of other institutions which are loosely associated with something called the new constitutionalism, which is a global phenomenon that is appropriated and adapted in the Thai case in a particular way. So this 97 constitution is supposed to make rules of the game, and it's got two purposes. One, it's supposed to strengthen electoral politics. And the reason why you need to strengthen electoral politics in 1997 is because at this point, the king is getting elderly. It's going to be important to set up robust institutions that can deal with a royal succession that is going to come uh, before too long. And the idea of the rather ironically sort of liberal and conservative 
group of people who are behind the 97 constitution is to create a set of arrangements that will be succession proof so that you can institutionalize representative politics. You won't have to keep going back to the old politics of monarchical interventions, which we'd had in, for example, 73, 76, 81, and 92. So you won't need to keep asking, expecting, or hoping for the king to come in and solve the country's political problems. So that's one purpose of it, to make representative politics stronger. But it's also supposed to stop elected politicians from getting out of control, stop them from being corrupt, and stop them from abusing their power. So all these expectations are built into 97. By 2006, it's become obvious to the royalist elite, the very same people in some cases who crafted that 97 constitution, that the project has failed. Taksin Shinawad was such an effective politician in terms of his capacity to mobilize electoral support and his capacity to penetrate and exercise control over almost all aspects of the Thai state and public sector, including the civil service, the military, the police, and so forth. What happened with Taksin was that here you had a phenomenon that could not be dealt with by the mechanisms that have been written into that 97 constitution. So there we have a kind of a recipe for disaster. You've on the one hand made elected politicians more powerful, but you've also seen that the devices you'd built in to stop them from becoming too powerful are failing and that Taksin is becoming uh, so popular uh, in regions of the country like the North and Northeast that he's you know, the unsayable thing, more popular than the king. So you have a perfect storm, as it were, <laughs> into right. which uh, Thai judges are, are drawn. <laughs> and do you characterize the outcome of their attempted interventions in the introduction to the book as inept, inflammatory, and unconscionable? So is it just that they were brought into conditions that were so far beyond anything that they could conceivably do to address them such that they were unsuccessful? Or is it rather the case going to the nature of the inflammation that they further exacerbated the problems? The judges were in an almost impossible position, and this is the extent to which I sympathize with them, because I think that they needed this problem like a hole in the head. That said, when you're given very challenging problems that stretch your capacities beyond their limits, you can rise to the occasion in a variety of ways. But essentially, they fell back on their core sense of who they were. They thought what their job was, was to, to defend the monarchy and to defend the status quo, and therefore they were going to push back on those elements of the society that they saw as threatening that status quo. And they were all too willing to ban political parties, to convict people in, for example, Les Majestés or other cases, and send, sentence them to long terms in jail. And they were not really thinking about law and the legal process as a way of addressing political conflicts, because essentially the cases they were hearing were not about crime as conventionally understood. They were political cases. And by refusing to acknowledge that they were essentially acting in a political manner, they got themselves into a very, very difficult place. This gave rise to the recurrent chant of the pro-Taxon redshirt movement about the existence of double standards. Why is it you're treating this group of people in society so harshly and accusing them of one way or another plotting to overthrow the monarchy? Lom Jiao, this is a huge theme in, in the book, obviously, the idea of Lom Jiao and the idea of treason, the idea that people who have critical positions that don't align with yours are on some level trying to subvert the 
legitimate state and to undermine the monarchy. So you jump from, okay, this person took part in a demonstration or this person posted something online or this person was editor of a magazine that contained an article written by someone else that said something rather obnoxious. And then treating that person in an extremely harsh way so as to send a signal that this sort of behavior wouldn't be tolerated and not really understanding that behind this person stand millions and millions of people who may not share the same views but have a sympathy for the way in which those defendants were being treated very harshly by the courts and whose enthusiasm for critical and ultimately radical causes would only be inflamed. And and we see a continuation of this today with the student protests of last year. It's all part of the same kind of idea that if you attempt to suppress people's legitimate political aspirations, they'll somehow go away and people will start behaving themselves Mm -hmm. and become virtuous and good again. Whereas actually what happens is people become incredibly irritated and infuriated. And if you ban political parties led by people that you don't like, which started with Taxon and has then extended to other people, including most recently the Future Forward Party led by Tanatorn. These people don't disappear. All the people who supported them just become more and more aggravated. So the actions of the courts in positioning themselves on one side instead of thinking in terms of their wider role in society were very problematic. And most of these cases should have been thrown out and the court should have given straightforward public statements that these cases were nonsensical, that the prosecution should not have been brought and that they were going to release the people immediately, throw the charges out. This could have been done again and again and a bar could have been established that, no, we're not going down this road. This is idiotic. Some of the cases I talk about in the book are beyond idiotic. They're utterly ludicrous. Let's take one or more of those cases. The middle chapters of the book offer accounts of a number of different cases that you followed in the course of your fieldwork that you yourself observed. They're organized into three categories, crimes against the crown, some of which you've been alluding to already. Next are computer crimes, which you haven't yet referred to. And last are crimes against the state. I'd invite you to say perhaps draw on one or two of those cases for the advantage of listeners who aren't familiar with the situation in Thailand so they get a sense of what kinds of political crimes you observed. There are three particular cases which I've picked out in the end. I attended a lot of other cases. and I read huge numbers of documents and reports and talked to people about lots and lots of additional cases. But in the end, I boiled it down to three, which I thought were particularly illustrative. And one of them is a very well-known case. This is the Somyot case, which all concerns a pro-taxin magazine that was being published by a guy who wasn't really a professional journalist. He's a political activist, essentially, who had previously been actively campaigning against the Les Majesté law and then finds himself charged with it. So the absurdity of the Somyot case is that Somyot didn't write the two contentious articles in question. Everybody knew who had written them. They were written by Jack Rapop, a former government minister currently in exile. But the guy who was in exile who'd written the articles was never charged with anything. The person who was charged was Somyot, who was essentially blamed as an intermediary for having been editing this publication. The other problem with these articles is that you do need quite a lot of inside knowledge and a familiarity with the bizarrely cryptic way in which Thai political satire is crafted to make the slightest sense of them, because 
no actual names of members of the royal family, for example, appear in the articles. What you get is this sort of politics of illusion, giving things nicknames, which is, of course, incredibly popular in Thailand. So Somyot gets convicted for Les Majeste in two articles that he didn't write, which don't make a great deal of sense to most people anyway. And bizarrely, neither side of the court case neither the defense nor the prosecution wants to talk at all about the person who really wrote the articles. Uh, and Somyot ends up getting an extremely harsh sentence on the basis of Les Majesté that he clearly did not commit. One of the other cases that you refer to in the third of those chapters they mentioned relates to a protest outside yes. the compound of the legislature. Perhaps you could speak to that one briefly as right. well. What's interesting about this, people tend to focus on what might broadly be called red or red shirt cases. What was interesting about the third case that I look at in detail was that this anti parliamentary protest was led by John Ungbakon, who has, has not at all been seen as being on the, the pro-taxin side. He's an NGO activist and a very prominent figure from a, a very distinguished family in Thailand. And the people who joined him in protesting against the parliament were actually, for the most part, people who were associated with the PAD. And later, the same people actually were central figures in some cases in the PDRC protests that paralyzed Bangkok, the Bangkok shutdown of 2013 to 14. Interestingly, they were also caught up in this kind of politics because on that particular occasion, this group of people have been protesting outside and then went inside the compound of the Thai parliament and very, very briefly occupied a lobby uh, with a couple of hundred people and made a few statements. And then after a discussion with the president of the then military appointed National Legislative Assembly, they left the compound. There was no violence. There was no damage done. This is not the storming of the Capitol in the United States and took place on in January 2021. This is a very different kind of event. And yet an extremely heavy handed approach was taken to these people. And ultimately, they were given suspended sentences. But the point here was that even people who were on the quote unquote, good side of politics, because they have been aligned, if you like, on some level with the royalists, whether or not they themselves could be seen in that light, even those people could also be subject to fairly arbitrary criminal proceedings and charged with very serious crimes because they were committing the crime of disrupting the political order. And in this case, they were challenging the authority of the military hunter of 2006-07, which was passing a large number of laws in rapid succession before the military-appointed National Legislative Assembly was about to be dissolved. These, in any case, are, as you said, already political trials. They're identifiable as such. So were I to adopt a position that would be defensive of the judiciary in Thailand as a whole, I might say that, well, under these circumstances, the judges are put into situations that unavoidably they have to rule in particular ways, knowing the political conditions that they're now caught up in. But that doesn't in any way reflect on the conduct of the courts, the judiciary as a whole, or the process by which ordinary criminal cases such as they are, are adjudicated. How would you respond to that? Look, let's talk about my favorite chapter of the book, <laughs> which is the one where we really talk about the world of Thai judges. 
it's a long book. Not everyone's going to read all of it. If you don't have time to read all of it, please turn to page 30, Privileged Cast, and read 25 pages of that chapter, which explains who Thai judges are, where they come from. And from that, you might get a rather different impression than the impression that could be derived from focusing on what I say in the introduction or jumping into those court cases. Who are the people that I am really fascinated by and identifying with? And we're not supposed to identify with anybody when we do this kind of research. But I've got to confess, my incredible partiality is for the judges themselves. I like Thai judges, and I'm very, very interested in understanding their imaginative world. And I hope that that is something that comes through very clearly in the book. I don't want to reduce them to a cipher. So I think in many ways, they've been sort of tormented by this position that they found themselves put in. I wish I could say that what we find in these freedom of expression and broadly speaking what I call treason felony crimes that in some way touch upon treasonous thoughts or intents towards the Thai state, that these particular trials are very exceptional and very unusual in the wider Thai context. Unfortunately, if you just sit in on some fairly ordinary criminal cases in Thailand, you know, very mundane theft and uh, assault cases of a kind which I spent quite a bit of time following as well, many of the same problems begin to appear. A sort of knee-jerk partiality for listening to prosecution positions and witnesses, cutting the prosecutors quite a lot of slack, being very reluctant to allow a lot of defense witnesses, not really taking the opportunity to draw out defendants and get them to explain their positions very well. I mean, Thai judges can ask questions. It is a sort of a civil law system. They could be much more interventionist than they are in court cases. Some of them are. I've seen cases where really it was the judge doing a lot of the questioning rather than the prosecutors or the defense lawyers. That would be unusual. But time and time again, you see situations where poor people, people with less education, effectively have fewer rights, they're disempowered in the courtroom, and they're treated in relatively arbitrary ways. And let's not forget that despite the fact that three or four Thai judges completely independently quoted to me Blackstone's famous formulation about it would be better to let nine guilty people go free than have one innocent one convicted, the conviction rates in Thailand are over 95%. If there isn't a solid case, it's always a matter of Yok Fong, you know, the, the case is withdrawn. Thai courts are not geared up to acquit people. They sort of find ways of making the cases go away if they don't add up. But if the whole process runs its course, the outcome is likely to be some kind of conviction. A second massive problem is a problem about appeals. Thai judges are often seen as being very conservative, very illiberal, but there's an incredibly liberal uh, get-out clause at the heart of every Thai trial, which is that anyone can appeal. If you get a 500 baht fine, you can appeal to the Court of Appeal, and your request to appeal to the Court of Appeal is almost never refused. And if you're not happy with the Court of Appeal, you can appeal to the Supreme Court and your request to appeal to the Supreme Court is rarely refused. So the appeal and Supreme Courts are absolutely clogged up with people who are challenging decisions of the courts of first instance. So the process can become incredibly protracted. And this is the generosity of the Thai state towards the defendant. We'll convict you, but then we'll automatically let you appeal. Duncan, I think we'll pause here for a sponsor's message. And when we come back, I'd like to dwell a little bit more in this world of the Thai judges that we've gone into. And perhaps also we can touch on another term which we haven't yet addressed, but it's an important one for your book, and that's hyperlegalism. Okay. 
New Books in Southeast Asian Studies has the generous support of the ANU Southeast Asia Institute, connecting you with the Australian National University's wealth of expertise in the politics, languages, societies, and economics of Southeast Asia through research, teaching, events, and more. To get details, visit seasiainstitute.anu.edu.au. That's S-E-Asia Institute as one word. Welcome back to New Books in Southeast Asian Studies, where our guest is Duncan McCargo, author of Fighting for Virtue. Duncan, before the break, you assigned our class a reading, which is the privileged cast chapter. And like you, you'll be pleased to hear you as the author and me as a reader. I found this really an outstanding and incredibly important chapter. The judiciary in Thailand is opaque, difficult to get a sense of who the judges are, how they think and how they're working. And to address those questions really are the tasks that you set yourself at the outset of the book. So I'd invite you to speak a little bit bit more to some of the basic questions about the judges, who becomes a judge, how they're trained, how do they rise in the ranks, how you yourself got access to data that enabled you to answer these questions. Well, it's not all that easy to find out stuff about the Thai judiciary, but it did turn out there were more sources of information than possibly people had realized. I mean, I did have a chance to talk to a number of judges, but I also got access to some published and freely available documents that I don't think many people have um, delved into. So who are Thai judges? They're people, for the most part, who've passed a fiendishly difficult entrance exam. There are three doors into the Thai judiciary. The front door is the large field, the main entrance exam, which anybody with an undergraduate law degree can access. So what the brightest and the best students, particularly from Tamasat and Chulalongkorn, but also Ramkampeng and some of the other provincial universities now coming up, will try to do is to pass this very, very difficult entrance exam and get in through the front door. You can't become a judge until you're 25. So a lot of people have this window of opportunity between graduating at about 22 and trying to become a judge at 25. And they use that time to go to sort of cram schools and memorize as much as they can and internalize previous Supreme Court judgments, which form the basis of a lot of the questions in the entrance exam. And they also become lawyers and work on a certain number of of legal cases, which is a a requirement in order to be able to qualify to become a judge. It has to be said that a lot of this work as a lawyer is pretty notional. Many people who prepare to become judges don't really do a lot of active legal work because it's not something that they really see as important. What they see as important is passing this entrance exam. If you pass the entrance exam and go in through the front door at the age of 25, you're then given a ranking number. Your ranking number uh, stays with you for the rest of your career. So if you're ranked number one, you come top in the main entrance exam at the age of 25, you ought to be president of the Supreme Court the year that you retire. And you know that. And everybody around you knows that. And the only other people who might get to be president of the Supreme Court are the people who got numbers two, three, and four. And if one or more of you falls by the wayside, they may be able to step up. But that's pretty much known. And the people who got number 78 in the ranking, they know they're probably never going to set foot in the Supreme Court. Now, there is a complication that there are two other ways in. There's a side door. The side door, as it were, is for people who have studied at master's degree level. And there's a significantly smaller number of people who've gone 
for the master's degree route and therefore it's less competitive to get in by that way. And then more recently, a sort of backdoor was opened up for those people who've studied at master's degree level abroad for at least two years. There are really relatively few of those people. And if you've had the chance to do that, your possibility for passing the entrance exam is considerably higher. That said, your ranking is not going to be as high as those who went in through the front door. The people who went in through the other doors, although they're judges and they may be very capable and may have very high status, there's something about going in through that very, very tough main entrance exam that has a cachet, and pretty much all the top people in the Supreme Court have gone in through that route. So all of these things amount to a kind of internal ranking system. Then the other thing that's ranked are all the 200 or so courts in Thailand, which are ranked in order of desirability. And they used to be ranked literally in order of their distance from Bangkok, which is... An interesting way of viewing desirability. Now they've come up with a new list which factors in that, for example, Chiang Mai is quite an appealing city in which to live these days because it has more amenities. So that's risen up. If you look, for example, at the three southern border provinces, Bataniyala and Naratiwad, Naratiwad is ranked the highest of the three because it contains a royal palace. So there are some oddities in this list. But broadly speaking, the higher your ranking number in the entrance exam is the better chance you have of procuring for yourself these more coveted postings in the higher-ranked places on the list. This manner of appointment of judges and promotion of judges, is that one reason for the kind of formal legality that many scholars have pointed to when discussing the work of the courts in Thailand? And what then is the relationship between that and the hyperlegalism of which you speak well, there is a sense in which this you know, highly regimented system where you get to become a judge by literally memorizing a lot of past judgments by the Supreme Court socializes you into a certain mentality. This is not the legal mentality that you find in a lot of other countries. It's certainly not in a sort of Anglo-American system where people who rise to the top of the judiciary have typically had extensive experience in other areas of the legal system, have themselves defended or prosecuted large numbers of court cases, people who have written books and articles who are recognized scholars and experts in areas of law. You don't find very many of these people in Thailand. It's a culture of generalists where judges are very, very proud of their knowledge, but their knowledge in some cases has been sort of frozen in time since the day when they passed this fiendishly difficult entrance exam. There isn't a sense in which judges are really trying to gain more expansive understandings about legal philosophy, about how legal systems operate in other countries, about how law intersects with questions of politics and economy and society. It's a very, very narrow understanding of what law is. And this causes judges to become rather defensive about what it is that they feel comfortable doing and what it is that they feel comfortable talking about. And that's where the, the royal mission, if you like, in 2006, help us to solve Thailand's political problems, is a big headache for them because they've been precisely avoiding doing that. Most of them have never taken any classes on the interrelationship between justice and politics at all. The sort of courses that you would find in most law schools around the world barely exist in any Thai law schools because the law schools have geared themselves up to this very technical kind of 
educational model. So on the one hand, judges are extremely confident of their knowledge, but it's a knowledge of Thai law and previous Supreme Court judgments, and it doesn't go very much further. So that tends to reify their position. It leaves them in this sort of knee-jerk situation of believing that they're experts, but also believing that they're virtuous, believing that they're on the side of good, believing that this is a fighting for virtue is a phrase from one of the royal speeches. They're on the side of good, fighting against evil, and they're doing it on behalf of the monarchy. And this gives them a kind of a moral imperative to carry out their mission. Once you bring together this sense of embodying virtue on behalf of monarchy, but having a very, very limited range of understandings and tools to deploy in terms of performing that virtue. All you can really do to perform your virtue is to demonstrate your mastery of Thai law as it currently exists and has been interpreted by previous Supreme Court decisions. So what Thai judges see themselves as doing is managing the system on behalf of the monarchy rather than creatively dealing with problems. And this is where Tong Shao and Ishiguna of course, talked a lot about hyper-royalism and the way in which everything refers back to monarchy. Judges have created their own sort of version of this, which I call hyper-legalism, that the answer to problems must be found in these existing legal codes. And the answer to political problems is really to single out those who are behaving badly who are not virtuous, who are not loyal to the monarchy and might be suspected of trying to undermine it in some way, and to punish them harshly in order to bring them into line. And then once they're punished, of course, they will see the error of their ways. And possibly at some point, they could be pardoned as a result, not of a sense that they should probably never have been convicted in the first place, but as a sense that now they are ready to receive royal benevolence and munificence. The monarchy and the judges are not the only protagonists of this story that mm-hmm. you're telling. There are other lead protagonists, including some in a chapter on challenges to the courts. Who are they and what kind of challenges do they mount? There have been some challenges mounted to the judiciary from a variety of sources. I guess one of the most interesting and I had written about previously and separately was the Nitirat group, or a group of critical legal academics based at Tamasat University, and they really have called the judges to account and said, look, what you're doing is not really judging as conventionally understood. What you're doing is just defending the existing institutions. Why is it that you never seem to have a problem with illegal seizures of power by the military, for example? This is the the biggest question that the judges really struggle to answer. You're so agitated by these people who are posting completely cryptic and incomprehensible messages online or writing articles that don't really make any sense under pseudonyms. Why can't you do anything about the military completely subverting the constitution and all the regular legal procedures by seizing power? What about that? Of course, once the sort of declaration of judicialization, if you like, took place in response to those 2006 speeches, you then had an outpouring of criticism about the way the courts and the constitutional court were behaving, especially from people on the pro-taxin side, as I mentioned, talking about the double standards. And at certain points, there were even demonstrators camped outside the main criminal court compound in Bangkok, having regular Sunday afternoon gatherings at which they denounced the judiciary. This was all a very, very interesting mobilization of sentiment against the judges that was triggered by people's sense that some of the decisions of the courts have been unconscionably harsh. 
So that was an atmosphere that judges were not really used to. You know, since 2006, after they were given the poison chalice of this mission to help solve Thailand's political problems, the status of judges has in some level declined because they have been implicated in the political polarization and contention in, a, in ways that they feel very, very uncomfortable with. So you alluded to the part that they played, especially in the endorsement of coups. And one of the questions I have is then why not have a chapter specifically on the relationship between the judiciary and the military, in as much as you have a chapter on bench and throne relating the judiciary to the monarchy? What about one on bench and tank? I didn't find enough material to write a whole chapter about that. Perhaps I should have written more of a section on it. I mean, Pierre Boot sort of did it with his book called coup court, the whole argument of, of this book, I think 2017, is exactly this, that why is it that the courts have always given a free pass to the military when they've staged coups? But, you know, my chapter talking about bench and throne, there's lots of material there. We've had members of the royal family turning up and literally sitting on the bench and performing the role of judges, which is an extraordinary thing to happen. And that illustrates the incredibly intimate connection between the two. You can't see lots of occasions when military rolled up at courts. That didn't really happen. The military have their own courts. That should be something for somebody to write about in more depth. We really could do with a good article, if not a book, about the military courts and what kind of functions they have been performing, especially since the 2014 coup, when they really sort of ramped up in importance and significance, which the regular judges are very uncomfortable with because they see that as a kind of threat to their monopoly of jurisdiction over criminal cases. By way of a fieldwork footnote, uh, did you have difficulty getting access to courts in Thailand? And what kind of advice would you offer to others who are thinking of doing the kind of research that you did for this book? In principle, all court cases in Thailand are open. And anybody can walk into any courtroom and just sit at the back of the room and and follow what's going on. That more or less works in Bangkok, where they're used to, in my case, random foreigners showing up. It's not particularly surprising, especially when it's a somewhat high-profile political case. There are obviously journalists and activists and people who follow cases. There were a couple of times when judges asked me, to identify myself and ask me whether I could follow the proceedings in Thai. And some of them actually summoned me later to talk to them in their offices, which was interesting. That was exactly what I wanted to happen. I wish some of the judges in the cases I was most interested in had also invited me to their offices. But probably the more interested I was in the case, the less likely it was I was going to get to have a private conversation with the judge. But yeah, on the one hand, in theory, anybody can go to any courtroom. I remember, it, I won't name the province or the court, but I was in a particular province doing field work in a court and I had met the uh, chief judge of that court at some sort of social gathering and then followed up with him for a, a conversation. And I said, you know, there is a bit of an issue here because every single courtroom in this building has a sign outside it saying you can't enter the courtroom and follow the proceedings without permission. He said, oh no, not in my court. All courtrooms in my court are open. And this was <laughs> completely contradicted by the fact that there's a physical sign on every single courtroom door in the very building in which we were talking, saying exactly the opposite. You know, I got into difficulties in certain places, let's just say. Outside Bangkok in particular, people were very suspicious of, of what I was doing. Uh, it's also not always very easy to work out 
what cases are being heard at any given time. In many countries, court cases are consecutive. Like you can go to a courtroom and assume that for the next three days, this trial will be continuing in that room. That wasn't very much the case when I was doing my fieldwork in 2012. I've talked to judges since who say the situation has improved. But what you find all the time with Thai court cases is the proceedings are suspended because the witness didn't show up. So if you're attempting to follow a court case, it can be very, very difficult. It was also the case that I could not find a clear schedule or timetable of what was going on in particular courtrooms. And when you go to a particular courtroom, you'll find that the proceedings are often interrupted whilst a different court case starts to be heard or a judgment is announced or some procedural announcement is is inserted. So I have to say it was a challenging experience trying to work out what was going on in Thai courtrooms. And sometimes I would just literally follow people around, see interesting looking people or someone would smile at me or say hello and ask me who I was. And I'd say, okay, which court case are you involved in? And I would just go with them and sit down in the room because I was trying not just to focus on the high profile cases that I talk about in the book, but to get a feeling of the texture and the flavor of an ordinary Thai court cases. It sounds like there's at least one other book in this. Are you planning to write a, a follow-up volume? Were you drawing on some of the other ethnographic data that you generated? I did write this one article in the Asian Law and Society Journal, which talks about my adventures in provincial courtrooms. And at the moment, I'm thinking of drawing a line under it there. I've spent a number of years on this project, and I am a person who doesn't like to stay with one thing for too long. I have this policy of forcing myself to embark on a different field of study every six to seven years, which I've been pursuing for quite a while now. And I repeat myself less if I move on to a new topic. Can I ask what that new topic is? What are you working on now? I did last year uh, another book with a former PhD student of mine, Anja Chatrakun, about the Future Forward Party. We'd planned to write a, a book about the party, and in the spring lockdown of 2020, we suddenly had the time and space to do that. So we wrote a book in 12 weeks about Future Forward, which was uh, without going to Thailand. And I've just been working on some stuff about the student protests. So I'm very interested now in oppositional or progressive, for want of a better term, politics in Thailand and what kind of shape that's taking. Generation Z, I think, is incredibly interesting. The older I get, the more interested I am in people who are under 25, because that seems to be where the action is at the moment. Well, we'll put a link to the new book, the uh, Future Forward book on the website, along with that one to the book that we've just been discussing. But maybe the close to tie your current research back to what we've been talking about, it would be hard not to ask you to speculate a little on whether the judiciary and its prestige under the new monarch in view of how much from your account in Fighting for Virtue, its rise and its work in judicializing politics in Thailand depended on its relationship with the monarchy or the institution of the monarchy. What are the implications of all of this for the courts in Thailand in coming years? I mean, it is true that I suggest at the end of the book that the judicialization, at least as described in Fighting for Virtue, had peaked, uh, that it's really a 10-year or 10-and-a-half-year phenomenon from April 2006 to October 2016, which is nice if you want to write a book, you know, to give it a a decade-long span. Of course, judicialization hasn't gone away and people are going to come back and say, well, look, what about uh, the dissolution of a couple of parties? What about the way that suddenly Les Majestés charges are being revived against the student protesters? Judicialization hasn't peaked. They're still doing it. But it's true they are still doing it. I think the difference, though, is that the 2006 royal speeches were like 
quite a lot of royal speeches in the past in Thailand, pretty ambiguous. The judges were not told what to do and exactly how to do it. And we're in a different situation now. It's true that the judiciary may play a role in carrying out the wishes of the palace, but this brings me to another whole topic in itself, which is what, you know, what did network monarchy really mean as a concept and, and how have people used and misused this idea? I mean, it's great that people are still talking about this idea more than 15 years on, but some people got slightly the wrong end of the stick because what really matters about the network monarchy concept is agency. So in network monarchy, agency is devolved to other actors. The king himself likes to float above the scene, making cryptic utterances which are left for other actors to interpret. And the judiciary became one of the main second tier actors who were interpreting these cryptic utterances. I don't think there are any longer any cryptic utterances. And I don't think there's any longer very much agency on the part of judges or people in the military and so on. I think we have a much more centralized, much more top-down, much more command-based model. So the network is still there, but whereas during the halcyon days of network monarchy, a wide range of people from liberal reformers to military generals to judges had a lot of independence to figure out exactly how to interpret these cryptic injunctions, now there's no independence People are just being told what to do, and the judges are expected to deliver this, that, and the other. And at one point, you know, student protesters are all being bailed out, and suddenly uh, they're all being slapped with less majesty charges. And it's quite clear this is not happening randomly. Instructions are coming down, and they're not ambiguous instructions. So I think judicialization, in the sense that it's described in the book, puts the onus of agency onto judges themselves, whereas the judicial interventions that are taking place now are being initiated from above. That would be my guess. I can't prove it, but that would be my guess. Duncan McCargo, thank you very much for coming onto the show to talk about fighting for virtue. Thank you. It's been a great pleasure. And thanks to everyone for listening. If you're interested in politics and law in Thailand, then you may like to also check out the interview I did last year with Chul Habakorn on her In Plain Sight, Impunity and Human Rights in Thailand, or another back in 2017 with Samson Lim on his Siam's New Detectives, Visualizing Crime and Conspiracy in Modern Thailand. These and tens of thousands of other interviews are available for you to listen absolutely free of charge on the New Books Network website or from wherever you get your podcasts. Thank you.